0: And welcome to the podcast. This is Hypochondriacs Almanac. Uh, we are recording for you folks on this Wednesday evening. It is pouring down rain outside where I am. I don't know what's the weather like where you're at, Katrina. Um, we're still recovering from the snowpocalypse. Oh, nice! <laughs> so Pacific Northwest <laughs> snow apocalypse. It's it's pretty uh, snow beginning.
1: Um, we have a a nice cover of icy. Like now, it's just like hard ice. On where the snow was. Yeah. And you can just slip everywhere.
0: It's awesome. Well, in case you guys didn't know, this is Sarah, and I'm here tonight with my co host, Katrina. Um, this is the podcast where we talk about weird and strange and funny diseases. If you have that sniffle, twinge, headache, it's not a tumor. We understand, we identify, we look at a WebMD all the time. That's what this podcast is all about. Weird diseases, strange illnesses, crazy syndromes, all that good stuff. Before we... Stuff you might have uh, diagnosed yourself with. Right, exactly. Um, before we get started, we're going to throw out a couple of little disclaimers. We're not doctors or nurses or professionals in the medical industry. Katrina is setting to be a nurse, but please, please, please do not take anything we say on the show as medical advice. We're not trying to treat, diagnose, or fix any of your medical conditions. If you have an issue, please see a doctor. Don't guess or take what we say as a diagnostic tool. That is not cool. We just want to talk about all the fun and weird parts of the medical world in the past, present, and the future. Ready to jump right in, Miss Katrina? Yes, ma'am. So tonight we're kind of taking a blast into the past with our medical um, knowledge here, and I am going to start it out with a really cool article that I found called 10 Ancient Egyptian Medical Practices We Still Use Today. And I found this article on listverse.com. I've really always been fascinated by Egypt. Um, We did a story in one of our first podcasts about reincarnation that was really about an Egyptian woman. So um, this is a very interesting article for me. But it says ancient Egypt is mostly recognized for its pyramid, hieroglyphs and mummies. Rich culture that has lasted for over 3,000 years before Christ, it left behind tons of relics which provide insight into the civilization. Thanks to translations of documents and inscriptions as well as beautiful images, we now know a lot about ancient Egyptian life. Thanks to the ancient Egyptians' practice of mummification, we learned much about the human body and seem to have developed advanced medical knowledge um, from their work that they did all the way back then. But centuries ahead of their time, a lot of the Egyptian practices that doctors used would not be unfamiliar to us today. Um, We don't use spells or ambulance as the ancient Egyptians did, but there are many other things that we do use today when you visit the doctor's office that may not be so different than they were a couple thousand years ago. So the very first thing on this list is taking a pulse. So did you know that was an ancient Egyptian thing? Nope. So when you walk into a doctor's office today, there are a few things that they do kind of as a diagnostic tool every time you go in there. One is blood pressure, temperature, and pulse. So pulse was something that they did take way back when. Um, it kind of gives insight into the health of the circulatory system. Um, and it, You need to have kind of an understanding of arteries and veins that run throughout the body to kind of understand how that plays all into it. And this is kind of common knowledge for most of us today, but in early medicine, it was pretty much considered a pretty huge breakthrough. As a result of their mummification practices, ancient Egyptians had the knowledge of the circulatory system because they were really doing a lot with the body after death. And so this allowed them to kind of get a really good understanding of what the veins and the arteries and the internal organs did for the body, um, more so than we had ever learned before. But they did understand that the veins and the, that would connect throughout the body and this carried the pulse. So and then the, how that also related to the heart and how it pumped. And they saw the heart as a reservoir for the blood, and they knew the importance of the vascular system and were able to use it to help treat and diagnose illnesses. So this idea of measuring a pulse was far ahead of its time, and it would be centuries before it was picked up elsewhere in the world. Um, The Egyptians also counted the number of of vessels reaching each part of the body. Their numbers were not necessarily very accurate, um, but they did have a very good basic understanding about um, the human body and how it worked, even though they didn't realize exactly how many tiny arteries and veins were involved. And they pretty much only used the larger ones, which would have been useful in case of an injury or surgery, et cetera, et cetera. But it's very interesting that they were very knowledgeable in that particular area. Number nine on this list is turn your head and cough. So it's something <laughs> that guys have to do. Um, it appears, though, that... Let
1: me feel your balls? Is that what you're talking
0: about? It's an awkward exam, but it was actually practiced during the Egyptian times. Uh, The Ebers Papyrus, a medical manual from ancient Egypt, mentions a diagnosis of a hernia, saying it is a swelling appearing on coughing. There are even images from ancient Egypt of figures with both umbilical hernias, which protruded from the stomach, and the autographic images of hernias in the scrotum yikes that sounds painful oh my gosh that sounds
1: awesome
0: hernias happen when part of the bowel protrudes through the stomach's muscular wall they're often caused by straining or lifting heavy things considering that the egyptians gave us the egyptians gave us massive stone monuments like the pyramids they are accustomed to lifting heavy things and may have been very familiar with the concept of the hernia their treatment for these hernias was a little bit less known um, but this particular book the evers papyrus or Papyrus does mention using heat in the area, but it's not entirely clear if the heat was meant to just be a soothing treatment or if it refers to cauterizing the area to seal the muscles after minor surgery. So there's some speculation on on a number of researchers' sides as to what that was actually for, but it's kind of up in the air at this point. So, interesting. Number eight is tampons. Did you know that was an ancient Egyptian thing? No. So many would assume that tampons are a modern advancement that gives women freedom on when she's on her period and that they weren't used until recently in Western cultures, but they're um, they're not. They're actually much older than that. Um, well, hang on here. It says there were even advertising campaigns as late as the 80s touting the benefits of tampons and trying to convince American women that they were safe. These campaigns often refer to the ancient Egyptians' use of them as proof that they are ancient and natural. Often referred to as tayet or as an Isis knot, cloth tampons were made by using scrap fabric, cotton, rolling it up, and tying a string around the center. The name name Isis knot refers to the goddess Isis, who, according to legend, used a tampon while pregnant with Horus to protect him while in the womb from attacks by the god Seth. Ancient Egyptians also used other cloths similar to today's pads, which was common throughout many early cultures. Yet the beliefs of the supposedly modern tampon may be some something that Egyptian women knew all about or the benefits of the modern tampon. So they used it and they believed in it and it just, it gave them a little bit more freedom than we necessarily would have imagined. I I thought I even now um, thought that this was something that was relatively modern in conception, but it appears as though the ancient Egyptian women had a lot of knowledge on this. That's, that's, that's pretty badass, Right. Um, number seven on this list is fillings. So cavities were actually pretty rare in ancient Egypt. Since sugar wasn't part of the Egyptian diet, they did not have the tartar development and other issues that we do now. Also because they didn't have as many refined foods as we have now, um, and refined Mm -hmm. flours and sugars and different products that have been processed can stick in the gum lines and around the teeth. And so it can create tartar, plaque, and cavities. But they did wear their teeth down quite a bit back then because the flour and grains were ground with stone. And despite their best efforts, small pieces of stone were always in the food. So also when they lived in that sandy kind of desertous environment, there was sand in the food. That was just kind of one of those things. So this would wear their teeth down and could lead to cavities or infections. So back then, an infection from a cavity could actually lead to death if bacteria entered the bloodstream. And I think it's still possible for that to happen today, but it's much, much, much more rare. But Nefertiti's sister, Horam-Bleb, I'm not even sure how to say that name, it's crazy complicated, supposedly suffered from bad teeth and had lost all of them by the time of her death, likely due to infection. So it was much more common back then to have people that had kind of a genetic illness or lost all their teeth from infection rather than having one or two fillings with a lot of people. But different fillings and ointment recipes were found in the Ebers Papyrus book. One of them describes how to treat an itching tooth with the opening of the flesh. An itching tooth? An itching tooth until the opening of the flesh so what's an itch what's an itching tooth so i guess it's one with a cavity but it says one part cumin one part resin of incense one part dart fruit one part oh so it's just one parts of cumin resin incense and dart fruit and you're supposed to crush and apply that to the tooth this was supposed to drain the infection other filling recipes included honey which had antibacterial properties and ochre a paint pigment heavy in cotton iron and ground wheat other times, the filling was simply cloth. In 2012, a mummy was CT scanned, uncovering a cavity that had been filled with linen. Can you imagine filling your linen? You, pretty much putting a tampon in your tooth. A tooth tampon? <laughs> yeah. But it basically <laughs> we're gonna said. To, we're
1: going to have to market that, Sarah, and get rich.
0: Yeah. So in, two, th- <laughs> in 2012, <laughs> that mummy that they scanned had the cavity that was filled with linen, but the man was still suffering from an infection at the time of his death, however. Ancient Egyptian doctors did their best to treat cavities and stop them from getting infected, but going to the dentist was never fun back then, I'm sure. It's still not fun. Yeah, (laughs) cray-cray. Number six on this list is prosthesis. So, I bet you didn't know that was a a big deal back then, and I'm kind of looking at this prosthesis, which is actually a big toe, and they have, like, a leather piece on the top of the foot with, like, strings That was like strapped onto the foot to provide a toe. But um, mummies in Egypt have been found with the world's oldest known prosthetic limbs, toes, fingers, and so on. Prosthesis to replace missing parts were essential to Egyptians for a couple of reasons. One was the Egyptian belief that after death the body needs to be whole and preserved for them to be able to return it to the afterlife. This is why mummification was so important and likely why prosthesis existed. By replacing the lost limb, the body would be made whole again. So they were using it more as a matter of making the body perfect in death was, I think, the primary reason. But of course, having a prosthesis would help a person maintain some functionality in life. And there's evidence that prosthesis were also made for living patients. This shows how Egyptians used amputation to treat infections and injuries, and it appears that people sometimes survived the surgeries. Crazy enough, the most famous of these patients was a lady found with a wooden big toe, and that's the picture that I was looking at. That's in this article on Listverse.com. But the area, the area under the prosthesis, had healed, showing that she had actually used a prosthetic toe in life. It likely helped her walk and balance once the old toe was lost. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. one is considered the oldest known prosthesis ever discovered, but it's super cool. And it's very kind of a smooth, very elegantly shaped toe. And it looks like it's made out of wood. So, I mean, they really have Did you just say elegantly shaped yes, toe? Yes. It's actually really pretty. <laughs> And it looks like they did some like a really good job in carving it. They they kind of had some master craftsmen that were working on this stuff back then to be able to like create this that it looks like a real toe. Number five is government controlled medicine. But you didn't know the Egyptians were onto that before socialist governments and before um, government provided medical care, but access to medical care medical care was very well controlled in the ancient Egyptian government. Doctors were educated through a specific curriculum and were members of the house of life, which was usually associated with a temple. There were medical institutes that trained doctors and also functioned as medical practices where anyone could go to receive treatment. As mentioned before, there were medical manuals like the Ebers Papyrus and the Edwin Smith Papyrus, in which ailments and their treatments were outlined as well as recipes for medicines. This showed us that doctors shared cures and treatments as part of a standardized care. Doctors in ancient Egypt, Egypt could be male or female and appear to have chosen specialties like doctors today. Male or female. That's really interesting. With access to well-trained doctors, Egyptian citizens had better health care than almost anyone else at the time. I think that in Egypt, weren't they, they treated women differently than, than England or you know other places in the world. It seems as, though, and, throughout well, that's history, right? But even workers' compensation existed there. They were descriptions of medical camps set up near construction projects and quarries so that injured workers could receive treatment. It appears that if the injury occurred on the job, the employer would cover the cost of care. Workers could even receive supplemental pay if they were unable to work. So thousands of years ago, this is a very complex way to approach healthcare, and it seems very similar to what we do today, which I think was is very, very interesting to me. Um, number four on this list is prescriptions. Having to take your medicine is apparently as old as civilization itself. Thankfully, now we have a spoonful of sugar to help it go down. The ancient Egyptians weren't so lucky. Often, medicines were, t- were trial and error. Some things ended up working really well, while other things have done more harm than good. The Egyptians knew oh. that honey worked well on wounds, which is still used today for skin ailments. They also I knew use that- honey for that. Yeah, yeah. They also knew that mint could calm a stomach. Other items like lead and feces may not have been such great ideas, which is disgusting. <laughs> Whether they worked or not, there were dozens of recipes for medicals, medicines preserved in the medical papyri books back from the day, along with instructions for their dosage and use. Patients in ancient Egypt would have sent home, would have been sent home with these concoctions and instructed on how to use them just as we are now. There were medicines for all sorts of issues made from a wide variety of materials like copper, clay, lead, and salt. Herbal remedies included fennel, onion, linseed, and mint. Other organic items included hair, skin, blood, feces, and those things were from animals or humans. Usually they would combine all three of those in recipes for the fullest effect. There seem to have been many recipes for constipation. <laughs> Some mm. said eat more figs, while well, others prescribed castor oil, which we still use today, mixed with cold beer. Ooh, <laughs> not sure how that, how delicious that would be. Um, Ew, right? <laughs> but it, maybe you've had a couple of beers, and then you won't taste the castor oil. Like maybe um, they had a castor remedy. Castor oil is gross. Yes, dis- pretty disgusting. They had a remedy for tapeworm, which included equal parts lead, petroleum, bread, and sweet beer. It may have worked to kill the tapeworm <laughs> and also the patient because lead and petroleum, good lord. Oh my gosh. So poultices were also a very popular treatment, um, stuff that they would kind of mix together and smear onto the wound or into the wound is a poultice, with external concoctions applied for everything from baldness to a stomachache. Milk was common, used, commonly used in these, as were multiple kinds of dung from cow and sheep to geese. Clays and lead were also included often. Human uh, secretions were sometimes included from urine to blood to milk. In the case of anxiety, one cure states to rub the afflicted person down with the milk of a woman who has born a son. So, breast milk, basically. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly what that is. <laughs> Very strange. Um, number three on this list is circumcision. Actually,
1: if you think about it, breast milk has a lot of yes. good quality. That property. one you know, I think quality, is... Like nutrients and whatnot. And when you're breastfeeding, they tell you to take your breast milk and rub it around the nipple for healing because um, sometimes the nipples get cracked and stuff, and it's got natural healing properties in it.
0: Yeah. So I can see that one. That one seems a little bit more logical than the dung and the feces and the lead and clay and whatnot so although even clay i can see as somewhat medicinal because it's supposed to draw out impurities and infection but in any case the number three topic on this particular list is dun 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 circumcision the practice of removing a male's infant's Foreskin has come and gone out of vogue over the centuries. Sometimes it's been viewed as a religious practice, and other times as medical. For and we thought that this began with the Jewish culture. Obviously, a lot of us did, but this actually was done by the Egyptians back in the day. Today, it is widely practiced by doctors in most Western uh, countries, regardless of religion. But the ancient Egyptians practiced it wide widely, believe it or not. So they have a lot of images within the tombs of showing doctors performing the procedure on patients. Egyptians were always very interested in personal hygiene, and they often shaved off their body hair to stay clean and avoid parasites and conditions associated with uncleanliness. This may be what led them to start practicing the circumcision throughout their culture. But um, it was so common that uncircumcised penises were actually a novelty. Writings describe soldiers' fascination with the uncircumcised penises of the conquered Libyans, often collecting them from the slain to bring home and show off. So they would Ew. be like, oh, hey, let's cut that off and run home and show let's it off as a that. trophy of war. Just <laughs> oh God, freaking scary, God, right? So gross. Scary and horrifying. They're,
1: there, they're like, look what I
0: found. Right? Let's make a necklace out of those bad boys. Um, <laughs> gross. <laughs> the number two thing on the list is surgery. The ancient Egyptians gained a wealth of knowledge of human anatomy and the workings of the body through their mummification practices. By operating on the dead, they were able to see issues in bodies and make associations with illness in life. These skills allowed them to practice surgery. Later, uh, cultures in the Middle Ages would lose this knowledge completely as autopsies were illegal for religious reasons. So they kind of got very, very conservative during the Middle Ages and lost their knowledge and skills in this. Um, but the willingness of the Egyptians to go ahead and, and cut into the body put them centuries ahead of everyone else medically. Um, so many mummies show that surgeries that a lot of surgeries that were performed back then actually healed. They actually removed tumors and did a number of other different types of surgeries for the human body. The Egyptians did um, scalpels were used for surgery. Um, they were either copper, ivory, or obsidian. Obsidian was really special to them as it is a volcanic glass that keeps an edge better than most modern metal and is still used today. Patients were given yes. alcohol and sedatives before a procedure, and since anesthesia didn't exist, <laughs> they were hoping these guys would pass out before the surgery so that it would be a little less painful. Um, they used mandrake root as a sedative and poppy juice and opioid as a, was used for pain management. Um, The main issue with the surgery was survival rates because the knowledge of blood transfusion was a little bit slight back then, Um, and many of the patients would bleed out if the surgery was too complicated or long, Um, but they did cauterize vessels with hot blades to help slow bleeding, and after surgery, they had antibiotic ointments like honey and copper to help um, get rid of infections, so it's very, very interesting. Uh, And then the final thing on this particular list that the Egyptians did way back when was they used opioids. Poppy is still grown today to uh, have been known to produce a very powerful drug and have long been known for their pain relieving abilities. Opioids today are still the leading pain medication, especially in cases of severe pain management. Um, poppy juice was u- uh, used by the ancient Egyptians. It wasn't quite the same as morphine or oxycontin today, but it still was a very useful drug for the time. Um, and In ancient, the ancient world, pain relievers were not very easy to come by, so being able to treat pain was a huge medical advancement for them. Poppy juice, as mentioned, could be used for surgery, and it was often mixed with beer or wine. It would provide relief to patients with nervous issues and sedate them, help, helping to relieve depression and anxiety. It appears it was also used across the board as a fever reducer and painkiller. The juice, a milky white substance drawn from the poppy seed pod, is not as strong as modern opiates, but was still pretty effective. That's a lot of stuff that they used back it's, then. It sounds like they were way more advanced for other cultures. It's like they went backwards. I think they kind of did in the medieval times. They really kind of, that's why I think in some people call it the Age of Darkness. But, you know, the dark ages and that kind of thing where we just kind of took some steps backward in the medical profession and just really lost a lot of the really good knowledge.
1: I have 10 Bizarre Medieval Medical Practices. Uh, this is also on the list first. I like, I, f- I find a lot of articles off there, too. Okay. Um, Medicine is one of the cornerstones of modern civilization, so much so that we take it for granted. It wasn't always the case that you can just waltz into a doctor's office to have them cure what ailed you. In medieval times, for example, things were a lot more dangerous and a lot stranger. It's go- It goes backwards on this article. It starts with 10. So, boar bile enemas.
0: Wow. That sounds fun. Yeah. Yes,
1: enemas in medieval, medieval times were performed by devices called clysters. A clyster was a long metal tube with a cup on the end. Lovely. The tube would be entered into the anus mm. and medicinal fluid poured into the cup. The fluid would then be introduced into the colon by a series of pumping actions <laughs> Sounds awesome, right?
0: Yeah. Although
1: warm soapy water is used for enemas today, things were a little is? more earthy <laughs> back oh, then. God. One of the most one of the most common fluids finding its way into a cleister was a concoction of boar's bile. Even kings were high up on the cleister. King Louis. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> 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 we we'll back Francis, to the experts. Said, ha- whatever that king was. <laughs> is said to have had over 2,000 enemas during his reign. Some even administered while he sat on the throne.
0: Gross. (laughs) He was super (laughs) constipated, which I can imagine. I mean, they ate a lot of, like, freaking meat and bread back then. That's got to stop you up, like, big time. Yeah, that sounds like super constipation right there. (laughs) Gross.
1: Number nine is urine was used as an antiseptic. Yeah, though it may not have been common, there is evidence su- to suggest that urine was occasionally used as an antiseptic in the medieval era. Henry, it looks like Henry the Eighth's surgeon, Thomas Vickery, rec- recommended that all battle wounds should be washed in urine. In 1666... Can you imagine how good the- they
0: probably smelled? probably smelled awesome in
1: 1666 the physician george thompson recommended urine to be used on the plague and there was even a bottled version called essence of urine (laughs)
0: lovely i'm sure that sold well This isn't
1: quite as insane as it seems. Urine is sterile when it leaves the body and may have been a healthier alternative than most water, which came with no such guarantee of cleanliness. Number eight is eye surgery with a needle. Lovely. Doesn't that sound awesome? <laughs> During the Middle Ages, cataract surgery was performed with a thick needle. The procedure involving involved pushing the cornea to the back of the eye.
0: Uh, uh, <laughs> it's of course. gotta be we were painful <laughs>
1: of course eye surgery changed rapidly once islamic medicine became to it began to influence european practices rather than a needle a metal hypodermic syringe was inserted through the sclera the white part of the eye and then used to extract of cataracts via suction Oof. oh a needle okay this one right, right here Number seven is hot iron for hemorrhoids. (laughs) (laughs) Ow. I'm
0: just like in pain thinking about it.
1: I wish you could see the pictures because they're actually like pretty ridiculous.
0: Go to the website. (laughs) Check it out. This this guy
1: standing on a stool like bent over for the physician and he's putting an iron on their boot butt. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. It was once believed that if a person did not pray to the protector against hemorrhoids, they would suffer from, you guessed it, hemorrhoids. Oh
0: my God. If you, was you a were a saint for hemorrhoids, fellows, <laughs> horrifying. Yeah,
1: you'd be sent off to the monks who would put a red, a red hot iron up your anus.
0: Oh my, <laughs> my God. gosh. Horrifying. That
1: sounds horrible. Nasty, but the less painful alternative was equally less effective They'd send you to go and sit on St. Fiacre's famous rock, the spot where the 7th century Irish monk was miraculously cured of his hemorrhoids. It was for this reason that throughout the Middle Ages, hemorrhoids were called St. Fiacre's illness. By the 12th century, things had changed. Jewish, Jewish physicians, physician Moses wrote seven chapter treaties on hemorrhoids calling in to question the contemporary state of treatment. He prescribed a fair simpler method, a good soak in a bath.
0: A far simpler method. Yeah, that's what it says. Just go sit in the bath, soak that shit out and it'll go away. Like a cold bath, <laughs> a warm bath. Like, I don't understand. A, a, a warm bath. Okay. Next. kid.
1: Number six, deadly surgery. Despite what blockbuster movies may have taught you going under the knife without any anesthetic wasn't as common in the medieval period as some people claim. In fact, medicine through this time was quite progressive as the world expanded and travelers came from far afield. Doctors from two different cultures would often share notes and new practices were constantly being put to use. However, even if, The will for better medicine, medical care was there. The the knowledge of chemicals certainly wasn't. Although anesthetic was administered. Anesthesia? No, they said although anesthetic was administered. That's how they say it. That's how they wrote it. For what they are today. As a result, many people died from infected wounds. Number five. Poisonous anesthetics. Lovely. As stated above, anesthetics were far from established science they are today. In fact, general anesthesia is only about 150 years old. Before these advances, a rather crude brew of herbs mixed with wine was used to sedate the patients instead. The most common of these herbal anesthetics was known as Dwal. There were numerous ingredients in Dwal, from innocuous, such as lettuce and vinegar, to the deadly such hemlock, and opium.
0: I thought you were going to say shit. Much like modern knockout drugs, mixing these
1: ingredients incorrectly could result in the patient's death. Here, here's an anesthetic. Okay, I'm dead. Bye. (laughs) Well, problem solved. (laughs) (laughs) Don't have to worry about that one now. Next. (laughs) No. Number four is trepidone trepany uh, it involves boring a small hole into the skull to expose the dura matter, the outer membrane of the of the brain. The practice was believed to alleviate pressure and treat health problems localized within the head.
0: It's brain surgery. Yeah,
1: though it was also thought to cure epilepsy, migraines, and mental disorders.
0: So and release evil spirits. Yeah, it's but. You know, it,
1: it exposed the brain to airborne germs, which often would be fatal. So that could kill you too.
0: <laughs> nice. But they found Everything bodies. Back then. They found bodies in Peru also with this particular pre- uh, procedure that showed that it was a pretty common emergency treatment um, when they wanted to clean out bone fragments left behind ah. from skull fracture or from like injuries if someone got either hit in the head or fell or had a, some sort of a brain injury. But they actually, nice. surprisingly enough, a lot of the patients survived that particular surgery, but sorry, go ahead.
1: <laughs> no worries. Three Number three is surgery on the battlefield. In medieval times, battlefield medicine was about as grisly as it gets, and arrows were one of the main culprits. Arrowheads were commonly attached to the shaft with wax for one single purpose so that when the arrow was pulled out, the tip would break off inside the victim's body. Oh, that sounds awesome. Purpose-built arrow removers designed to pinch the tip and pull it out from the body were used to heal wounded soldiers. Yikes. The wound was then cauterized with a red-hot iron
0: to stop the bleeding and prevent infections. I'm sure that sounds amazing. Doesn't that sound awesome? You're probably like totally shithoused and like half dead from mercury poisoning. So it's probably okay. <laughs> <laughs> or hemlock or whatever the fuck no else they were deal. giving them. Here's some more hemlock. <laughs> uh, have some cow dung mixed with hemlock. You'll be fine.
1: Oh, you're still in pain? Here's some more hemlock. Right. Oh, you're dead. Oops. <laughs> you're not feeling pain anymore. Problem solved. <laughs> Number two is medical astrology. Back in medieval times, astrologers were so revered that they that many thought they were real-life magicians. The truth is they were respected scholars who advised on increasing crop yield, predicted the weather, informed a family to be what sort of personality their child would have. The latter would often have consequences for the child's medical care. Doctor would doctors would refer to special calendars that contain star charts in order to aid with diagnosis. Sounds scientific. I'm not sure how the stars <laughs> would tell you what's wrong here. Right. Uh, by the 1500s, the physicians of Europe were legally required to assess a patient's horoscope before embarking on any medical interference. Astrology suggests that each body part is influenced by the sun, moon and planets and that each star sign presides over different parts of the body. Aries, for example, pertains to the head, face, brain, and eyes, whereas Scorpio presents represents the reproductive system, sexual organs, bowels, and excretory system. After the patient's star chart was examined and the current position of the stars was taken into account, a person's ailment could be predicted and diagnosed and a diagnosis would be made. I don't see how that could be very accurate. Why would people Keep coming back. Hey, it is what it is. Maybe they weren't educated enough. They must have
0: found some success
1: in it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have used it for so long. I don't know. It seems weird to me. I'm not sure how that would work. The number one on the chart is bloodletting. That's right. I said bloodletting. Doctors of the medieval period believed in things called humors. The word humor is referred to to certain fluids found in the body. Blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. Humorism was developed from the musings of Greek and Roman physicians who believed an excess or deficiency of any of the four humors would strongly influence a person's health. For some reason, in the Middle Ages, blood and excess blood in particular was often seen as the cause of multiple ailments. Therefore, doctors would remove large quantities of blood from a person's vein in the hope that it would cure them. Hmm. The two main ways of doing this were leaching and venous section. In leaching a leech was placed on the part of the body that was a concern and the blood worm would suck blood in in theory the illness from the patient. Venus section was a little bit more direct. A doctor would literally open it up a vein using a knife called a fleam and allow blood to drain from the body. Bloodletting was so common that some people drained their blood regularly just because they believed it would keep them healthy. Surely a half-hour jog is a better way to stay fit.
0: Yeah, they even had, like, special bowls and vessels and, like, all kinds of stuff to help with the bloodletting that were, like, specially created for that. It just seems so strange.
1: But then, you know, it just makes you wonder, like, how much of the stuff that we do nowadays is going to, like, it's gonna be how many years from now is going to be, people are going to be looking at that, like, chemotherapy? You did
0: what? Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, I've even heard <laughs> stories about Chinese cultures doing bloodletting as well. But it's one of those things that's just, like, it seems crazy to us now, but back then they thought it was completely normal because it was a wide, widespread practice.
1: Well, I can understand where they would get the idea that, that they could suck the illness out mm-hmm. if they didn't have enough of information
0: you know what I mean yeah but you know it was pretty easy also for them to accidentally like kill someone <laughs> by taking too much blood out so it was a super scary procedure back then you <laughs> don't need
1: all that blood
0: <laughs> but they were using it for sore throats for the plague for blisters just for general well being. It's very interesting. Um, and in a related article that I found that's somewhat similar to your article, but it's got a couple of other ones in it. From history.com, I have an article called Seven Unusual Ancient Medical Techniques. And the first two, bloodletting, which is what you just talked about, and trepanation, the, the earliest form of brain surgery. Um, were considered to be have, have been used by Egyptians and some of the earlier cultures as far back as 7,000 years ago. So those particular two procedures that I believe you covered in your previous article um, were also used as ancient treatments. But number three on this list is mercury. Um, and we all know that mercury is a poisonous substance now, but uh, they used it quite frequently in ancient times. It says mercury is noxious for its toxic properties. Oh, excuse me. Mercury is notorious for its toxic properties, but it was once used as a common elixir and topical medicine. The ancient Persians and Greeks considered it a useful ointment and a second century Chinese alchemist prized liquid mercury or quicksilver and red mercury sulfide for their supposed ability to increase lifespan and vitality. Some healers even promised that if you consume these noxious brews containing the mercury, sulfur, arsenic, and other poisonous substances that patients could gain eternal life and the ability to walk on water shit's crazy one of the most famous casualties from doing this was the Chinese emperor Qin Shi Huang uh, who supposedly died after ingesting mercury pills designed to make him immortal so he was like yeah I'm doing this oops he's dead So mercury was a commonly used substance back in the day from the Renaissance until the early 20th century Um, as a popular medicine. They even used it for sexually transmitted diseases like syphilis. Um, Some accounts claim the heavy metal treatment was successful for fighting off infections, but patients often died from liver and kidney damage that was caused by mercury poisoning. So clearly that was not so successful. Uh, the number 4 on this list is animal dung ointments and I think we kind of briefly addressed this in one of the earlier articles which just sounds so disgusting to me but ancient Egyptians used this particular well it item. just kind of makes
1: me wonder what why how does that even get started and like why would they think that that would be a
0: i don't even know but it says lizard blood dead mice mud and moldy bread were all used as topical ointments and dressings women sometimes were dosed with horse saliva as a cure for an impaired libido so they have no sex drive so here here's some horse saliva that'll make it work Um, but most disgusting of all egyptian (sighs) physicians use human and animal excrement as a cure-all remedy for diseases and injuries According to 1500 BC's Evers, papyrus, donkey, dog, gazelle, and fly dung, like where the fuck do you find fly dung, were all celebrated for their healing properties and their ability to ward off bad spirits. While these repugnant remedies may also have occasionally led to tinnitus, and other infections, they probably weren't entirely ineffective. Research shows that microflora found in some types of animal dung actually contain antibiotic substances. So they kind of maybe got lucky in some ways on that one. And I think uh. that it's interesting in that there is some scientific research going on out there that's saying that some of the flora and fauna in healthy, thin people's shit is now being bottled up and put in pills and fed to obese people to, because there's something about the internal um, digestive system in healthy people. The bacteria in their guts is actually mm-hmm. healthy, and the bacteria in the fat people's is not. So they're saying that if you eat the shit, it's purified, of course, but the shit from the healthy I've people will help heard... the, the fat people be skinny.
1: Yes, I've also heard of people who have problem, like gut problems mm-hmm. having poop transfusions like put into their yes up into their from
0: healthy to, people because, to
1: help for healthier guts because yeah. they have the people who have the healthy gut bacteria they're putting it in helping them by putting it into their body
0: so it sounds like it was super cray right back then but in actuality some scientific research that's currently going on is actually using shit in a helpful and kind of healthy way. Well, that's what
1: I was wondering is I kept coming back to thinking about how um, penicillin is from bacteria. Mold. You know, yeah. So I was wondering if it had something to do with how the, um, it was digested in the dung and then just like left sitting. I
0: don't if know it did, if it did something to it. Pretty interesting. Um, the number five on this list of seven E unusual ancient medical treatments is cannibal cures. So, suffering from persistent headaches, muscle cramps, or stomach ulcers? Once upon a time, your local physician may have prescribed an elixir elixir containing human flesh, blood, or bone. This so-called corpse medicine was a disturbingly common practice for hundreds of years. The Romans actually believed that the blood of fallen gladiators could cure epilepsy. Crazy. What? 12th century apothecary. Do I don't know. But 12th century apothecaries were known for keeping a stock of mummy powder. This is a macabre extract made from ground up mummies looted from Egypt. Meanwhile, in 17th century England, King Charles II was enjoying a drought of king's drops, which is a restorative brew made from crumbled human skull and alcohol. So- is that supposed to be like bone broth? Yes sounds like it right a little (laughs) bit a little bit restorative (laughs) yeah maybe but these cannibalistic medicines were thought to have magical properties so the people were just like drinking that shit up like crazy and they thought that by consuming the remains of a dead person and that you were also ingesting part of their spirit and this could lead to increased vitality and well-being this type of cure was prescribed usually um and it corresponded to a type of ailment So each part of the body that they were giving as a cure was supposed to do something special. Like the skull was used for migraines, human fat for muscle aches, um, and it just, it sounds disgusting. Um, And getting the the fresh stock and the fresh ingredients for some of these was probably pretty foul. Um, They would even attend executions in hope of getting a cheap cup of a freshly killed person's blood in order to use these remedies. Ew. Yeah so um number six on the list of seven is wandering womb so ancient greek doctors believed that a woman's womb was a separate creature with a mind of its own according to the writings of plato and hippocrates when a woman was celibate for an extended time her uterus described as a living animal eager to bear children could dislodge and glide freely about her body causing suffocation caesar seizures and hysteria <sighs> this curious diagnosis endured some in, endured in some form into the time of the Romans and the Byzantines, well after doc- doctors had learned that the womb was held in place by ligaments. So this shit could just glide around the body. So if you're not fucking and bearing children, then your womb could just be just doing its own thing, just like fucking traveling all over. <laughs> To prevent their wombs from going on walkabout, ancient women were counseled to marry young and bear as many children as possible. For a womb you don't want you don't want that to walk go on walkabout. No, no. And for a womb that was already broken free, doctors prescribed a therapeutic bath, infusions, and physical massages to try to force it back into position. Were these physical massages with the penis? (laughs) <laughs> Who was doing these <laughs> physical massages? Oh shit! Your right womb here. is loose. Hang on one sec. Let me help you with that. I, I think it's back in place now. Okay. <laughs> they might even fumigate the patient's head with sulfur and pitch, while simultaneously rubbing pleasant-smelling lotions between her thighs. Okay, something is going on here. <laughs> This is just an excuse to get freaky with your patients, okay? Oh,
1: my gosh. Sounds like a pervert
0: story. Right? And I have never heard anything so crazy in my entire life. When I read that, I was just like, this is insane. Like, how is this even a thing? And then the very, very last thing on the list is Babylonian skull cure. And it says, For the ancient Babylonians, most illnesses were thought to be a result of demonic forces or punishment by the gods for past misdeeds. Doctors often had more in common with priests and exorcists than modern physicians, and their cures usually involved some component of magic. For example, if a patient ground their teeth, the healer might suspect that a ghost of a deceased family member was trying to contact them as they slept. According to ancient necromatic texts, the doctor would recommend sleeping by a human school for a week as a way of exercising the spirit. To ensure this disturbing treatment worked, the tooth grinder was also instructed to kiss and lick the skull seven times each night. Yeah that's Why seven some, some crazy Why not shit. Six
1: or five.
0: So like can you imagine if you had like multiple ailments at once and you had to like do all those things? So like your doctor's freaking rubbing the pleasant smelling lotion and like trying to get your womb to stop wandering around and you're like licking a skull and like <laughs> You would never want to go to the doctor, like, ever. No. It, this is, sounds like it was absolutely insanity at its absolute worst. So fun times with ancient medical cures. And you know what? When I was researching this topic on the internet, there were literally dozens and dozens and dozens of articles. So this is definitely a topic that I think we need to revisit at a later date because it, it's just its so ripe. There's so many different crazy things out there in this particular field that for us to just try to cover it off in an hour is insanity. No, not going to happen. So we'll definitely have a part two to this particular episode. Um, Fun, fun, fun stuff for the folks out there who are listening. But in the meantime, I think this is about the point where we say goodbye this point folks we're gonna say goodbye please rate review and subscribe if you have any questions or comments please send us an email we are at hypochondriacsalmanac at gmail.com never mind (laughs) the email address is in the show notes because i can't speak any further Uh, please join us again next week when we talk more about strange medical news conditions and treatments Um, We are going to try to start reading the emails from folks um, in future episodes, so please stay tuned for that. If you have any show suggestions or comments or corrections, please send them to us and we will give you a shout out on the show. In the meantime, good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye.